welcome to episode 149 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. My featured guest today is Kim Getchken, founder and CEO at Innovation Force. Kim is a serial innovator focused on helping customers solve the world's most complex problems in energy, transportation, manufacturing, and defense, leaving the world a little better than they found it. She founded her first company over 20 years ago and successfully exited with a sale to a Fortune 500 company. The Climate Champions is sponsored in part by the Gridwise Alliance, uniting grid modernization experts from across the electricity industry. The Gridwise Alliance promotes grid innovation for a decarbonized economy. To learn more, visit gridwise.org. You can't manage what you can't measure. So with no reliable way to measure it, most CEOs are unsatisfied with their organization's innovation performance. Innovation Force is a SaaS platform that knows what to measure. Organizations finally have innovation visibility and are able to drive increased performance, leveraging time to decision and team engagement scores. Analysis paralysis is replaced by teamwork, resulting in more innovative and more successful outcomes. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Prevad, and I'm here with Kim Getgen, founder and CEO of Innovation Force. Kim, welcome to the Climate Champions. Yay, Lee. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited too. I remember that we met at a Distributech. Correct. And I got to witness one of the hot sauce tasting competitions at Gridwise. Oh, yeah. I have another one yeah. of those coming up in December. <laughs> little plug for that. Yeah. I think you were working for Blue Pillar then? Yeah, I might have been working at Blue Pillar. And then for a little while, I was at a company called Tollgrade, which was acquired by Eclara. And that was a lot of fun too. That's where we were working on the uh, predictive grid sensors, trying to predict outages with sensing technology and distribution lines. Uh, I remember that because the CEO was on the Gridwise Alliance board with me back then. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of good work with Gridwise back then. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? For me, it was twofold. First was, it's the stat that we all know in the energy industry, but shocks people when I'm talking to folks outside of energy, which is 80% of carbon emissions is tied up in power generation, which leads me to the second moment, which was, if I were to leave a legacy and take what I'm really, really, really good at, and that is helping companies innovate, I thought, what if I could take these innovation skills and bring it to the energy industry and attack the problem at its source? If we could help more utilities who generate power lead the clean energy transition faster and easier, then wouldn't we be able to move the needle on climate change and leave a pretty big dent in the side of climate change? So we believe innovation can actually be the biggest weapon to mitigate climate change in the hands of utility professionals. So that's what we're doing. That's exciting. What is your personal driver for fighting the good fight here? If I were to go all the way back, you would laugh. I remember being a small kid and going into McDonald's back in the day as of styrofoam and being really, really upset that we shouldn't be using the styrofoam, 
right? It's leaving this big hole in the ozone layer. It started for me back then. And then, you know, fast forward in the nineties, I was able to go do my master's research and I was looking at deforestation and climate issues in West Africa and and environmental policy. And back then they didn't have a lot of environmental programs. So I was in the nineties and I remember reading a lot of the UN climate reports and just thinking to myself, like, when are we going to get the memo, right? When are we going to get the Now fast forward 30 years later, and here I am able to start a company that is dedicated to attacking this problem. So this has been a long time in the making. And I would just say now, I think I'm just at the right place at the right time to be able to fill that dream. When you meet people that don't accept the data or don't understand climate change, how do you explain to them what's going on? So for me, when I really think about climate change and and what we could be doing, I look at the incorporation of renewables and the grid infrastructure upgrade that we're going to do as not just adding to climate change and helping us get cleaner energy, but I also think about it as building resiliency and just a better system overall. And so for me, if I'm talking to someone that may not believe the data, if there's a way for me to get to talk about just overall system enhancement and improvement, why wouldn't we want to create a better grid? Why wouldn't we want to build a more reliant and resilient infrastructure? We all are dependent on electricity. It's the greatest invention of mankind. Why wouldn't we want it to get better? So for me, Upgrading the grid is really where I attack the problem. And so if I can't see eye to eye with folks that may not be believing the science, I try to just, from an engineering point of view, talk about what would be the best possible product that we could build here to deliver electricity. And especially with its prediction to triple in the future, wouldn't we want this product that we're delivering to be the best as possible? I look at it more of a resiliency problem as much as it is a climate change issue. You've already talked about innovation a bit, and not coincidentally, that is what your company is all about. Can you talk about how Innovation Force helps mitigate climate change? So yeah, we work with utilities and utility professionals, the energy industry, but we are helping them get those great ideas that would allow them to lead the clean energy transition. A lot of times it's complicated engineering work. We're working on these new ideas that have never been tried before or have just started to be experimented with that would allow us to upgrade infrastructure. And each one of these ideas follows an innovation process. And that's what our company is all about. We're trying to make it easier for the ideas to come into the utility from the people closest to the problem. And then for the utility to experiment with that idea quickly to learn and to gather and share those learnings with the rest of the industry so that we can all lead the transition together. This is a big planetary complex problem. And that's what I really like, that it's so complicated and hard. And the only way we're gonna solve it is by harnessing the genius of the collective, those of us coming together that are willing to share and experiment with new ideas and share it back into this ecosystem. What's so exciting about Innovation Force is it's not just an ideation helper, and it's not just a workflow management tool. We're actually helping utilities manage their ecosystems, their internal employees and partners that are coming together to solve this big problem with innovators around the world. I was interviewing somebody recently, and they used a word that I don't hear very often in mitigating climate change, and it surprised me. 
And that's the word team. And that if you get people together and working together and sharing information, you can do a lot more. And it sounds like that's what your solution is doing. Can you talk about how that works? I love the hangar airplane model. Yeah, absolutely. The research supports this. So our co-founder, Dr. Linda Hill, she wrote this book called Collective Genius, and it's all about ecosystem development and management. And her idea was it takes many slices of genius to be able to solve these huge problems. And so when it came down to innovation force, why would we build a technology to help? The hard part was scaling the genius. So the technology allows us to scale the genius. So the research is in, it takes a collective to solve these big problems, but it's hard to manage the collective without a tool to scale. And then the concept of the hangar came about because we really wanted to accelerate the ability for the industry to collaborate. We're running out of time. And so being able to work with each one of these individual utilities has been awesome. But why wouldn't we want some of their best ideas to be shared in a safe way with the industry? And we do this, what, a couple times a year when we go to Distributech or we go to Gridwise or we get to go to all these awesome conferences. But why can't we be doing it all the time? And so the hangar was this idea of it's where Pinterest meets LinkedIn with 200 challenge statements to launch that are gathered from real public filings and documents and R&D plans that utilities have open sourced, right? We took all of that, turned it into 200 challenge statements. And the joke is now you can scroll through these while you're sitting on the couch and maybe be inspired by one of your peers' challenges that you've already solved. And you could jump in and say, hey, I had a solution for that one, or I'm working on that one too, or I'm down to collaborate on this one. It's something we're working on right now. And so we wanted it to be like available anywhere all the time and be inclusive to anyone and everyone who has a problem or a good idea in this industry. In many industries, but especially the utility industry, I have found not invented here to be a very big thing. And I think your solution is one that can actually break down those walls. So I'm very excited that it could work. Yeah, and that's really what it's all about. It's about democratizing the process of innovation and allowing it to break down those walls. One thing that we do when we do work with utilities, and I'm glad you brought this up about breaking down the walls, Lee, it's culture. Look, you can have a process, you can have a workflow, you can have all the best ideas in the world. But if you don't build a culture for innovation inside of your organization, inside of your utility, all the best ideas are going to get trapped in the flow and the workflow. So the other thing that we're providing that gives us a bit of a competitive advantage is we assess cultures and their ability to build high-performing teams, high-performing teams of problem solvers. And so that's another element of like, do it all the time, everywhere with everyone. If you can measure culture and support teams to be solving problems, now you're building growth. Now it's innate in your culture of learning, experimenting, and solving problems. And that's only going to accelerate all of these awesome infrastructure upgrades, but also from a business-wide return on equity and growth for the utility. So it just, it's a no-brainer, right? Like the more that we could get culture to be a part of this, to show the connection between culture, high performance, and growth, 
it all makes sense. And, and I think more utilities are looking at how they can be more transparent, how they can be more diverse and inclusive. And isn't it awesome that your innovation program can actually support all that and deliver a business result? In 2005, 2006 at San Diego Gas and Electric, I remember helping to lead a program called Utility of the Future. Yeah. And we brought in IBM, we brought in Accenture and others, and they pitched us. And we were hoping to hear some really good new ideas. We heard a few. I remember Doug Hausman had a couple, but there weren't that many. And really out there, we know now there were thousands being developed. It sounds like this would be a way to do a utility of the future program because you would open up uh, this incredible, from the couch, you'd be able to open up this directory of all these solutions to your problems. That's exactly right. It's really about visioning the future and being able to take action. And I think like you back in 2005, you know, like if you think back to when we were talking about the utility of the future, there were lots of solution providers selling utilities ideas. And when I talk to my colleagues in on the utility side, they're saying, boy, stop selling me solutions and help me solve my problems. And so what we've seen over the last decade plus is the inability to act, take action. And I think really what we're doing is something really simple. We're just shifting the dialogue to say, instead of selling a bunch of solutions, why can't we focus on the problems? And by the way, when we focus on the problems, it doesn't have to come from the very expensive consultants. It can come from the people in the field who are closest to that problem that's trying to be solved. That's another issue that's near and dear to my heart. When you were asking me, Lee, about like, well, where did this all come from, from a climate perspective? You know, I can remember, you know, my early years of walking into McDonald's and being upset about the styrofoam. But the other impetus for me to go and do this was, was my dad. My dad was a steam fitter and he worked for Johnson's Controls. And so he was out in the field a lot trying to solve customer problems. And he wasn't always heard because you know why? He was wearing jeans and a blue shirt. So from an early young age, you know, and now looking back on it, one of the other reasons I really wanted to start Innovation Force is because how do we bring everyone into the conversation? There are people out in the field who have some really great solution to these problems and they're being ignored. We need to make everyone and anyone closest to the problem part of the solution. And so imagine now being able to have that as part of the collective and swiping through the ideas on your couch. That's what the power of this software and technology can do for us today. It wasn't available when my dad was out in the field. One of his great ideas was like, hey, why don't you give us a 1-800 number that I could call in so I don't always have to find a payphone in a quarter, you know? These days now with software and the phone, I could easily type in, here's a great solution to a problem I'm having. And it can happen instantaneously. We don't need the town hall meeting. We don't need the suggestion box anymore. We don't need a bunch of emails and ideas that get lost in spreadsheets, right? Let's make this more of an inclusive, active, participation-focused way to start looking at our problems and our solutions and really, really, really focus on the learnings. We talked a little bit about Blue Pillar. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about Toll Grade. Yeah. But can you discuss your prior background and how you got to where you are now? 
Well, I mentioned my master's degree. So I did have the opportunity to study deforestation, climate issues in the 90s. It was awesome. I did that at Oxford University. It gave me the ability to get out of the United States and see everything through a new lens. I was studying developing economies, very much interested in what was going on in Africa. And to this day, you know, I'm still very interested and, and want to be part of the solution of bringing electricity to parts of the world that today do not have it. So that's still one of those really big challenges that we need to solve with innovation. Did a little bit of work in my master's degree on climate change. But then when I came back, it was the go-go 2000s and the dot-com era and had to pay back a lot of those student loan bills that I acquired over at Oxford and jumped into technology. At first, I was laughed at a little bit because the technologist called me a tree hugger. So it took me a little while to embrace everything that technology had to offer. But I ended up moving to San Francisco and I started working for a cybersecurity company called RSA Security. Really loved the cyberspace and ended up founding my own company back in, I think it was like 2003. And that was a company that got acquired by McAfee. So I got a little bit of a bug of like, what did it feel like to be an entrepreneur and start a company and go through a little bit of that? Hey, let's start something in a garage and see what we can do to improve the world. And then after that success, I then transitioned back to energy because my heart was calling me back to energy. And at that time, it was perfect because the intersection of energy and technology were really starting to grow around smart metering. And so smart metering for me was that opportunity to say, hey, all this cool stuff that I've been working with in technology, that computer's going in the meter and they really need my strengths as a technologist. And I could see how I could parlay that then into other parts of the grid. So I started working for Echelon, which was a smart meter company in San Jose, California. And I started back at the bottom. I learned the grid from the bottom back up to the top. I started in as a product manager and humbly worked my way through the meter to the distribution line, right, to high voltage. And I started to figure out this whole grid. And it wasn't just the grid in the US, the grid in Europe, right? It's totally different. I had a really good time learning all that. And then from there, really the last 15 years has been about working for a variety of startups in the energy space and just seeing how hard it is for them to sell to utilities and how hard it is for startups to commercialize and monetize their products in a runway that's fast enough before they go bankrupt. Really hard for startups. I think energy is one of the most complicated, difficult industries for startups. That was another thing that called me. I thought, you know what, one of these days I'm going to start my own company in energy and just prove that it can be done. So I'm getting to live the entrepreneur's dream right now. <laughs> That's a very exciting background, and it sounds like you're a serial entrepreneur for sure. Did you have any setbacks along the way? Oh my gosh, like every day, you know, there's a gazillion setbacks. And that's another, probably, you know, the innovation bug for me is I'm always in problem solving mode. But yeah, tons of setbacks, tons of learning. So for me, every time there's a setback, it's really because there's a deeper lesson to be learned. Every setback, opens a new door. I'm a big believer in, you know, every time a door shuts, another one opens. And so to be really open to the opportunities that you're maybe being funneled into through some of the setbacks. But as an entrepreneur, like for me, when you start your own company and you believe in something as hard as I do, like it's do or die. Like there's no, there's no in between, you know, like this thing, 
like there's no way it can't be wildly successful, right? So to the point of, you know, and I'll tell you about some of my my sacrifices I've made to get the company off the ground. I've bootstrapped it. I've moved back in with my retired parents to save money myself. I sold my car. I have, you know, taken out my own money. I've luckily have had success in my career that I can, I have the ability to, to, to be able to make the investment. And, you know, thank God both of my parents are alive and they were, they, they're, they're part of this mission with me. So a few of the setbacks became really huge opportunities. And the greatest joy in my life is moving back in with my retired parents. And they see me fight for this every day. And it's been really cool. <laughs> Sounds very, very cool. You mentioned a company of yours selling, yeah. which is exciting to a major company like McAfee. What success are you most proud of? Success is relative. But what I'm most proud of is sticking to the dreams that I have and having the ability to go out and try it out. I have been really fortunate in my life that if I believe in something or I have a vision or a dream about something, I go for it. That to me is success. I'm not going to sit back and accept you know, a situation that is unacceptable, <laughs> such as climate change. And I have the ability to go out and be a fighter for it. So I think that's what success looks like, is uh, the ability to go out and fight for what you believe in and have a vision and a dream and be able to dedicate your life's work to it. When you look at the future with regards to climate change, 10, 20, 30 years out, how do you see the earth doing? Are we going to make it? So I was at a climate change conference earlier this year. It was really interesting. It was at Harvard Business School. And there were a lot of folks that were feeling like it's too late. And without the ability for us to innovate, we're doomed. So there was a very scary message in all of this that why can't we get out of our own way? And if you really think about climate change, it's a human design thinking problem. Like, why can't people get out of our own way to come up and enable the solutions that we have to solve the crisis? I tend to be an optimist. So I, I left that conference. It, it made me feel good that there was a dose of reality, that I tend to be an optimist, that we're going to turn it around. I just think we're, as human beings, procrastinate. The sense of urgency, you really have to be poked. So when we meet the challenge with the sense of urgency, I do believe in the inventiveness of humans. So I'm going to bet on humans <laughs> to solve the problem. Having said that, I don't know. I think our grid's going to look totally different. I think the way we deliver energy is going to be totally different. And I think that's really exciting. Look, the grid hasn't changed in 150 years, right? It's one of the greatest inventions of mankind. If you are in the energy space right now, this is your opportunity to come up with version 2.0 of a 150-year-old product that is life-changing. This is more exciting than Steve Jobs working on Apple. Okay, let's get inspired here and really, really think about what this grid of the future could look like. How could our customers interact with it? And what do we want out of it? The climate crisis is pushing us to urgent action but I also think the urgent action is going to cause us to design things totally differently. And that design is really exciting. And what's going to come, the collective genius will tell us. And I'm just here to create the space so that these really smart people can come up with these 
amazing ideas that are going to be 100 times more impactful than the iPhone. It seems to me that Grid 2.0, and I want you to be very critical of what I'm going to say, I could take it, is a federated network of microgrids. They're connected, so you still have them working with each other. So when the shortage is one place, energy is delivered to another place, but at least every place can have energy on their own and can optimize the energy that's available to them and how to get it. I can see different ways of doing that. And I think the human element is the hardest. Yeah, Businesses don't want to change and they want to make money. And that's going to be the hardest transition point. But whenever I look at this, I always come back to that network of microgrids. Tell me I'm wrong. No, because Lee, like, okay, let's remember that was actually grid 1.0, wasn't it? When cities developed in the United States, it was all municipal power that then got connected into 2.0. And so maybe we're at 3.0. <laughs> With computers, you had a mainframe and that was, the, so it was all centralized, right. a little bit different. And then it went to PCs. And then it went to client server. To the cloud. And now it's a little bit of both, right? Exactly. And that's what's going to happen to the grid, right? So it, it was distributed. It became centralized. And what's old is new again. What's old is cool again, right? It's distributed. And what's interesting now is going to be like, how small is micro? Are we talking micro? Are we talking nano? Well, even, even those nanos can build into micros can build, yeah. right? I mean, they can all be connected. Exactly. I want my house to be a microgrid. I agree. With solar and my EV helping to keep it going. There you go. But I want to be connected because I want to be able to sell energy and buy energy and contribute right. to the issues in the world. I don't know. That's how I see it. I do too. I think that is the long-term trend, right? That we're, we're all moving towards. You know, it has to be more resilient, microgrid types approaches I think microgrids bring resiliency. I think the ways we incorporate distributed energy resources can help build redundancy and microgrids can help build redundancy. It's all about, you know, getting smaller and more efficient and cleaner, right? The more local your generation is, the cleaner it is. So yeah, I see this definitely changing the landscape of the grid. And the question becomes who has the engineering talent and expertise to make that happen? And by the way, I'm okay if that's not the answer, but I really need there to be an answer because I think we're in trouble and we need solutions and we need them very, very quickly and very badly. I don't worry so much about the technology. I think the technology is going to be there. I worry about who's going to deliver it. I worry about who's going to keep it affordable, who's going to keep it safe, who's going to keep it reliable. Are we going to have this regulated or not? So when we think about the business model, that's what keeps me up at night. And that goes more back into the what we were talking about, the people problem. It's more of a political people problem than it is for me, a technology problem. The technology solutions exist, but who's going to deliver it? Who has the capability to keep it safe and affordable, right? And so the regulatory structures and policies and the way we govern this change, that's what I think will be the hard part. I agree with you completely. Can you talk about one piece of advice you would give to help people that want to help mitigate climate change? I would go back to collective on this. It's going to take a village. And this was another point I thought it was a really great point they made at the Harvard Climate Change Week that I was at at Harvard Business School earlier in the year. It's not just the anthropologist along with the environmentalist that is going to solve the climate issue. It's the environmentalist and the anthropologist 
and the person with the spreadsheet and the person with the capital all sitting around the table solving these problems collectively. So it's going to take different points of view. It's going to take a lot of hole punching. Linda Hill calls it creative abrasion for us to get to these best answers and these best solutions. So I think my word of advice would be keep your views expansive, make a seat at the table for everyone, encourage diversity of thought, have safe places to be able to have this conflict, to have this friction to come up with the best ideas. It's not your answer that's always the right answer. It's it's the collective answer of people coming together, building on top of each other that will probably have the best solution. So I would say, keep an ear open, definitely encourage diversity of thought. And Lee, there's this great Economist article, I don't know if you saw it, but the front cover of it was a tree hugger hugging a utility pole. <laughs> and that's my new word of advice for environmentalists. I love circulating that Economist article. It says, hug pylons, not trees. You know, I agree. We need all kinds of ideas, all kinds of solutions, all kinds of people that have different skills working together, all companies, all governments. We need a lot of all out there. I call it all arrows in the quiver. But now I'm thinking it's all arrows in all the quivers. Yes. Yes. And that's why we need ecosystems and ecosystem relationship management, which is what we're working on. Yeah. Do you have any questions for me? With all of your years of experience and where you see things going, you know, what advice would you have for us? Maybe I'm being too optimistic about how innovation could solve more of the problems. What what would you say to me and, and the generations that are coming in the utility now? Well, you have a lot of experience in this industry. You've already been successful. So I don't know that I have any good advice for you, but certainly that the road's going to be harder than you think. But I think you think it's going to be pretty hard. So <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm helping you by saying that at all. And okay, opportunism. And I really haven't used that as an answer before, but there will be opportunities. And when they're there, they will not be there for long. The window is only open for a short period of time. And I meet a lot of startup leaders that wait too long. They think it's always going to be like that. And they let those windows pass. Always look for opportunities. When you have those opportunities, you have to strike quickly because things change and you want to make sure you get in. And I'm sure you know all of that already. No, that's great. That's really great. And I know you represent and help a lot of startups too. So that's great advice. Is there anything else you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to? You know, Lee, I don't know if you saw it, but I had a chance to participate in the R&D event, the Innovation Summit over at Pacific Gas and Electric. And I was just so inspired by them where they were calling their initiative Lead with Love. And I thought, wow, that's a real change in the energy and utility industry is when you get a bunch of R&D leaders saying that they came up with this amazing plan that they led with love. And so maybe something is changing out there. I guess what I didn't get a chance to say was we need to lead with love a little bit more. And I'm going to take a cue from PG&E and say uh, it is about the people and let's not forget why we do what we do. So there's one more thing I'd like to add. And of course, we would not have been able to get to this point without all the awesome collaboration from our customers. Special shout out to Chris Gilbert over at Central Hudson for his courage in working with us to help us understand where we could have improved our process and build a better product. So uh, as a result of Chris's interaction, that's why we launched the Hangerly. It was the work of Chris and um, the good folks over at Central Hudson, as well as Portland General Electric. 
So big shout out to Allegra Hodges and Larry Beckadal. Thank you for your never ending support and helping a startup like us get off the ground. And on that very upbeat note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. I love the term you used, creative abrasion. And it's just perfect to have a force for innovation. The way that you're talking, I know when we will, will leverage the ideas in the book by your co-founder, Collective Genius by Linda Hill. I remember we got introduced at Distributech. I'm glad we met then. Also, I think we met once when you were at toll grade, but I forget when. You're obviously a strong, confident woman. Hey, don't get upset, men. Innovation will succeed. I'd even bet 10. Thank you so much, Kim Getgen. That was amazing. See, this is why we do these things. This is the joy. During the pandemic, one of our daughters left her small New York apartment to live with us in California until vaccines were available. It was a silver lining at a difficult time. It was a joy hanging out with her daily and really getting to know my amazing daughter as an adult. And so I teared up a bit when Kim talked about her sacrifices, selling her car and moving in with her parents, and how wonderful it is for her to share her latest entrepreneurial chapter with them. I know from experience, they appreciate it even more. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Utilities have many important characteristics. They bring reliable energy to the majority of humans. They offer a fairly low risk investment opportunity for shareholders, and they often provide stable, equitable, long-term jobs for employees, but they are not known for innovation. Their business model supports a low risk approach with innovation rarely providing equivalent return. But most utilities have the capital, the skills, the experience, the workforce, and the ability to expand the workforce to be a key part of the energy transition. I would love to see utilities embrace innovation force, solve the challenges industry transformation presents, and be a huge part of mitigating climate change. Mm -hmm.